Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. And before the episode begins, I would just like to let you know that Be Scared, which is produced along with Studio 71, features scary stories from around the globe on a weekly basis that aim to fuel your nightmares with a smile. And if you enjoy the podcast, it would be great if you could hit that subscribe button and drop a review. But thanks for listening, guys. And without further ado, let's begin. We rode silently for some time, with my initial assumptions being that we were going back to his hometown for him to tell me the rest. As we drove, however, I began to realize that we were going north rather than east, taking the highway for two hours before he turned off onto a small paved road that later led to a gravel one. Another few miles and we turned onto a concrete driveway that led up to a metal gate and chain link fence topped by a razor wire and several surveillance cameras. A sign next to the gate read, Jaeger Solutions Incorporated. I looked over at my grandfather perplexed. What is this place? Why are we here? He smiled at me as he tapped a remote attached to his visor and the metal gate began to open. We're at the back cave. I couldn't do research and other things related to all this close to home, so I bought this place. He was pulling through the gate now and gesturing to the three large warehouses contained within the fence's perimeter. This used to be a warehouse for an importer. Guy sold rugs and carpet, I think. But when he died, the place sat unkempt and unsold for years before I found it. Got it for a song, though the repairs and modifications did take some time and some money. He pointed to the farthest building. That's the main building there in the back. These other two are mainly for storage and some fake inventory in case the place ever got audited or broken into. Most people don't even know that it's tucked back here though. As we drove past the first two buildings, I saw relatively new looking signs cautioning forklift safety rules and importance of always wearing a, a hard hat and gloves. I pointed at them. Safety first, huh? My grandfather nodded. 
Yeah, me and my uh, non-existent workers, we've never had a workplace death since I bought the place. He paused. Well, except for outsiders, of course. We parked outside of the building and he led me to a door with a keypad, making a point of showing me the code before we entered. Inside was largely empty except for a pickup, an SUV, and a corner of the building that had been converted into a workshop of sorts, filled with workbenches and tools along with a heavy oak desk. I looked at him questionably. The Batcave? He let out a chuckle. No, no, not this. He walked over to a far corner that was largely in shadow, and as I drew closer, I saw that it contained a stack of what looked like corrugated roofing tin. He went to a spot at the edge of the tin and stepped on it with his foot. With a loud hiss, a portion of the tin lifted up to reveal a growing slit of amber light. As it expanded, I realized that a large hydraulic hatch had been camouflaged by the pile of scrap and was now opening to reveal a set of concrete steps leading down into the ground. My grandfather pointed at it proudly, Batcave. He led me downstairs, which consisted of a short hallway with a small living area, including a shower, sink and toilet on one side, and a larger room that was clearly a lab of some kind on the other. At the end of the hall was what looked like the door of an old bank vault. When I mentioned that to my grandfather, he nodded. That's because that's exactly what it is. As you can imagine, after I got this place, I had to have all of this underneath added in. I convinced the contractor that I was some kind of doomsday prepper. He was into that stuff too, so he actually gave me a discount, believe it or not. But it was still ungodly expensive. He pointed to the vault door. But this, this I actually got for free. Well, kind of anyway. He took two large metal keys from his pocket and stuck them into the door. They turned with a large metallic thunk that made me think of a bank robbery movie that I had seen some time ago. He then gripped the wheel in the center of the door and gave it two full turns before tugging the door open. Lights came on inside as the door swung aside, and looking inside, I could see that he had more than just a vault door. He had an entire vault. Safety deposit boxes lined the walls, and in the center, a heavy metal table had been bolted to the floor, with several smaller tables on rollers surrounding it. Some were filled with medical supplies or tools or something. Others were filled with items that you could find in a garage. Drills, pruning shears, hammers, knives. Along several places on the wall, I saw what looked like metal mesh cages that seemed to contain something possibly cameras. Everything though was immaculately clean, but it did little to make the room seem less sinister. This looks like a, a cross between an operating room and a, a torture chamber. Speaking the thought before I realized it and looking quickly at my grandfather, afraid that I hurt his feelings, but he was nodding as he looked into the room before meeting my gaze ruefully. That's pretty much what it is, if I'm being honest. I got this vault from a defunct bank in Arkansas after I had started work on this place. The bank building was being converted into a restaurant of some sort and they just wanted the vault gone. So I had to pay for the removal and transport, which was quite a bit even 20 years ago when I got it, but it was worth it. He pushed the door back closed and led me back into the living space. 
Aside from a cot against one wall, it contained an overstuffed chair and a sofa along with a pair of small tables. Sitting on the sofa, he gestured for me to sit in the chair. Before I try to tell you any more, I, I think that I should show you something. As I sat down, I saw that he had picked up a tablet from the small table next to the sofa and was tapping at it. After a moment, he handed it to me. It was a, a video, and even before I hit play, I could see that it was taken with a camera in the vault room. It looked very similar to how it looked now, except for a little girl tied to the metal table. I felt my stomach lurch and I had to fight to resist the urge to ask more questions before hitting play. But, I mean, I had come this far and I needed to see it through and have some faith. When I started the video, I could see the girl struggling at the straps that held her. The video was not of the best quality and seemed to have been filmed through some kind of mesh like those small cages I had seen in the room, but I would have guessed that she was no more than 10. After a couple of minutes of tugging at the straps, she then became deathly still. I leaned closer to the video, squinting to look for any signs of life, but nothing. I glanced at my grandfather. He pointed to the tablet. Yeah, keep watching. Returning my gaze to the video, I waited and watched. Several minutes passed. Suddenly, I saw the briefest glimpse of her entire body seeming to flicker or jump almost. And then the video went scrambled for half a second. When the image returned, it was in infrared mode and I almost threw the tablet down. Where there had been a little girl... There were now strings of coiled, stringy flesh that stretched out across the room in all directions like some kind of macabre spiderweb of gore. My first nonsensical thought was that the girl had somehow exploded and that the image had frozen mid-destruction. But then, I saw the strands of meat moving of their own volition, running together and pulling apart like chewing gum as they explored the walls. This... This wasn't that little girl at all, or at least the version of her that had been there moments before. I looked back at my grandfather. This is one of them? He nodded and began to explain. Two years after Sulk's death, I had three more hunts under my belt. I had already learned that many of them behaved differently from Sulk and that the outsiders, human form and the monsters were one or at least inextricably linked. But I had only seen one of the three actually transform, and he was radically different than the thing that Sulk became. He was a young guy named Stephen Kolchek, and he worked construction in Atlanta. I had taken to going to medical conferences in different places to have a reason to travel and widen my net in my search for outsiders. I'd encountered him at a, a diner near his current work site and decided to extend my stay a few days. I trailed him back to work and found that he was working on a high-rise apartment building that was going up nearby. He knocked off at four that afternoon and I kept with him all the way out of Atlanta proper and into one of the suburbs where he lived with his parents. I followed him for the next three days and nights as best as I could and on the third night he left home and headed back into the city. At first I thought that he might just be going out somewhere but he headed right back to the work site he didn't seem to have a key to the gate, but 
He scaled the fence nimbly and ducked into the shadows of the partially constructed tower. I went down to the fence a hundred yards and followed suit. It took me a couple of minutes to find him in the dark, but when I saw him in the dim illumination of a distant streetlight, standing just inside what one day would be the lobby of the building, he was looking up at one of the walls as though trying to decide something, his face half hidden in the shadow, but the portion that I could see was as blank and emotionless as Sulks had been. And then he changed. In the blink of an eye where Stephen Kolchek had stood, there was a, a much smaller creature, two feet tall or thereabouts. It had a, a barrel of a torso with arms and legs all covered in something that looked more like bluish moss than any kind of hair and a flat thick head that looked like a, a snapping turtle, except for having six eyes on each side of its long sharply beaked snout. It gave out a, a small contemplative clicking noise as it shuffled back and forth, still looking up at the wall. Suddenly it leapt up ten feet and clung to the spot that it had been considering. As I watched, it began to lick the wall with a, a long black tongue, each lash leaving a, a blue-gray trail of slime on the spot that quickly blended in with the concrete. I had no idea what he was doing, but I knew that it wasn't good. Still, I remembered shooting at that thing that I now felt sure that had been Sulk and the bullets did nothing. So this time, I waited in the shadows for him to finish his work. It took maybe two hours, but he moved from place to place throughout the outer shell that had been constructed so far, and I felt guilty for not moving against him, trying to stop whatever it was that he was doing. But it was just too great a risk without knowing more about what, if anything, might hurt or kill him in this form. When the creature was finished, it climbed back down to the ground and, just as quick, the young man was standing there again, fully clothed, no sign of having just turned into a monster. This was definitely food for thought, but now was not the time for theorizing. Trying to move quietly, I left the shadows to intercept him from behind as he went to leave the building. I had a collapsible baton that I had carried with me from the car and I brought it down hard on the back of his head. Or that was the plan at least. Unfortunately, he turned at the last second and it glanced off his shoulder, eliciting little more than a grunt of pain as he dodged to the side. I was already reaching into my jacket pocket for my stun gun but when I pulled it out and hit the button, it was dead. This was strange too because it had been fully charged and working when I got to follow him over the fence. But again, no time to wonder, right? He was, uh, there was another flash of movement and the man was replaced with the creature. Without missing a beat, it leapt at me, slamming me to the ground. I managed to get the baton up to him to catch its sharp mouth diving for my face with the iron bar of the baton wedged into the creature's maw, I felt like I was just delaying my death rather than preventing it. It was surprisingly heavy on my chest and its hands and feet ended in hard claws that were already digging into my clothes and flesh, pushing my arms down and minimizing any leverage that I had to push the baton and the creature further away from me. But then I noticed that it was stopping. It pulled its head away swiftly and I thought at first that it was going for another lunge, but then it jumped off me, shaking its head. I quickly rolled to my feet, ready for the next attack, and saw that it was glaring at me, light grey smoke coming from the edges of its mouth. 
I could see the yellow-brown of its beak blackening slightly where the smoke touched. I could tell that it was considering its options, looking at the baton in my hand and then myself. It was afraid of it more than me. It suddenly leapt into the shadows and for a moment I thought that it might be retreating, but then I heard the scrabble of claws behind me. I spun around with a blind swing and managed to catch it right before it landed on me, knocking me back down. The baton had hit it in the side and done remarkably good damage, caving in part of its torso and causing it to immediately begin trying to roll crawl away. But I was quicker this time, getting back up on my knees and bringing the weapon down again and again until I was certain that it was dead. I found out later that I survived because of dumb luck. Apartments.com believes that a dishwasher does more than just clean plates. It turns your whole place into a time machine by turning the time that you would have spent washing dishes into extra time for you. That could mean more time to read, more time to knit, or more time to contemplate the vastness of time itself. With Apartments.com, finding somewhere to live with an elusive dishwashing slash time-expanding device is easy. Apartments.com hosts the most rental listings with over 1 million available units. And with comprehensive search tools and instant alerts, you never have to worry about missing out on the perfect place. To find whatever you're searching for and more, visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Some of these things are very weak to iron, unnaturally so. If it had been made of steel, I would have died that night. And there was a time later on where my reliance on iron nearly did me in too. There are rules to these things, but you can never assume that they will always apply. There are always exceptions, and you have to always remember that they have most of the advantages. The way that you can beat them is by being smarter and stronger willed than they are. More clever. I'm still learning now, but back then, whew, I still had a lot to learn. One of the things that I wondered early on is what the nature of these things truly are. First of all, are these people transforming directly from their human form into something else? Like a, a werewolf or some version of vampires? But if that was the case, I reasoned, then what are the limits of how much they can transform? Look, there's no denying the supernatural component of all of this. And even early on, I understood that there would be some aspects of it that I would possibly never fully understand. But at heart, I'm a scientist and... I always start from that framework in trying to understand what I can. 
I considered mass, for instance. Once I understood more of how the human and creature forms were connected, I started looking back at earlier encounters. Sork, for one. That creature was over half, again, as large as him as a man. And while you can displace mass to some extent if he was less dense in spots, I can tell you from the sound of it chasing me and the force with which it knocked me out that the monster version of Sulk weighed significantly more than the man did. And this creature I just told you about, it was less than half the size and weight of Stephen Kolchak. Even if his physical body was somehow transforming into that thing, well, where did the rest of the meat and bone and fluid go? And then you have examples like the video that I just showed you. These things take all kinds of forms and sizes and then go back to looking like people the next instant. But the biggest sign were the clothes. They weren't shucking off clothes or ripping them apart as they changed. They could turn back into being human with hardly a wrinkle or a smudge. So they aren't transforming. They're swapping places. It was a theory at the time, but since then I've managed to get some footage slowed down enough that you can see the transition happen, if just barely. It's similar to when you drill through the seed, though it happens even quicker. One moment the person, the next moment the monster. Or to be more accurate, they are both the monster, just with different strengths and weaknesses inherent to each form. Both are capable of doing a great deal of harm though, and I've seen more than a few seem to rarely change at all to their other form. Their goals just don't require it, I guess. When I had this place set up, I redoubled my efforts to learn more about them and those goals. I have a very secure closed circuit filtration system running into that room, so I can control if there's air or not and pump in gas to sedate or kill if I need to. The system has no ties to the other ventilations down here, so even if one of these things turned into a mist, it couldn't get out once the room is sealed. Though I doubt that that's a possibility in any case. One of the consistencies though that I've found between all of these outsiders is that their non-human form is always at least semi-solid and is never so small that it can't house the seed. The seeds, they do show up on MRIs if you know what to look for, but for obvious reasons I've never been able to scan one in creature form. But I believe that the seed is the key. It acts like a gateway between this reality and, well, wherever those things come from. What looks like a transformation is actually a, a swapping of sorts. But if you destroy the seed, you destroy the gateway. And if you kill the human body, the seed will dissolve approximately 37 minutes after brain death. That's by design, I think. Just like most of this is by design. As he had talked, my grandfather had been animated, telling about his encounter with Kolchek, but that life had drained away as he talked about all that he had learned. Now, he was silent for a moment, staring off with a, a melancholy expression before looking back to me in a, a forced smile. He leaned forward and tapped the tablet. Did you notice the wire mesh in front of the camera in the video? Did you see those wire boxes in the vault? I nodded and he went on. When I first captured one and put it in the vault, I set up two camcorders to record what had happened. I didn't think that there was any real risk of it getting out and I had gas ready if I needed to knock it out or kill it, at least assuming that gas would work. 
because again, you can never assume anything is certain with these things. In any case, I lock it in, it wakes up, it transforms for a while and tries to get out. I can hear it beating against the door, then it tries swapping back to the person, a pretty woman who ran a wedding boutique in Memphis, and I can just barely hear her screaming and crying as sympathetically as she could muster through the wall. I hit the gas, go in and deal with her, and then I check the video. But the videos were blank, and the cameras were fried. And it was then that I figured out that whenever the swap happens, it sends out a short but very strong electromagnetic pulse, kills all electronics and lights in about a 40-foot radius around it, and that is why my stun gun had died fighting Kolchak, and that's why my cameras got toasted. I nodded. So you built Faraday cages around cameras to shield them? He laughed and nodded. Exactly. Very good. They aren't perfect, but between the shielding on the cameras themselves and the mesh, for the most part, I can capture decent footage now. His expression was lighter for a moment, but my next question brought back the look that I had feared since we left our fight with the house earlier in the day. So you talked about them having goals. Have you figured out what the point of what they're doing actually is, or is it just random? He frowned looking thoughtfully for a moment and seeming to consider his next words carefully. I don't know what the overarching plan is, no. Though I, I could guess that it is a stage of some larger campaign to encroach upon or infect our world with their malignity. But that there is a plan, an intelligent design that is, is really hard to deny at this point. He leaned forward, tapping his fingers individually as he made his points. First, the seeds are designed to take over people and also provide for an extremely efficient method of bringing over this other form, all while appearing to bridge and share consciousness between the two forms. Could that be naturally occurring through some evolutionary process? Possible, but unlikely, Given the supernatural component and how perfectly it aligns with their apparent goals of infiltrating this world without notice and creating pain and death. Second, consider that all of this occurs without altering the DNA or most biological processes of the human form. There was no indication in Salk's tissue samples that he was other than human. And while his blood unquestionably has some unique properties... It has nothing that raised red flags during routine testing at the hospital. And I can tell you that I've run exhaustive tests on these things over the years and never found any trace of anything abnormal other than the seed itself, which somehow manages to self-destruct less than an hour after death, leaving no trace that it was ever there in the first place. He sighed and looked away for a second. I could see that he was on the verge of crying, but... He held it in check, looking back at me with his iron gaze as he spoke. Third, look at who they target to take over. I've encountered close to a hundred of these outsiders in just over 30 years. My guess is that there are at most a few thousand of them in the world right now, maybe less. But without fail, to the extent I can figure out what an outsider's individual goal is, the person that they have taken is in a good position to accomplish it. It's not random. 
It's part of some broader plan. He rubbed his mouth and went on. I also know that they have to be able to control and plan precisely who gets a seed. It's not like an infection or a bomb. It's very selective. I frowned. What he was saying made a lot of sense, but it was still assuming a lot. How do you know that for sure, though? What aren't you telling me? He looked down, his mouth trembling slightly. I know it because of the odds. Say there are 3,000 of these things out there. Out of over 6 billion people, what are the odds that a specific person would have a seed? Extremely low, right? But out of all of those people, against all of those odds, I... I have one inside of me. I jerked involuntary forward, blood rushing in my ears all of a sudden. Wait, you have what? I had to have heard him wrong. He looked back up at me, tears now welling at the corner of his eyes. Yeah, they put a seed in me. I know, I know it comes as a shock and yes, I'm sure that I really do have a seed in me. Let me explain. So, I'm 77 years old and I've been at this since I was 45. It's a long time to do anything, much less something this dangerous. And like I've told you, the key to being successful is in being smart and careful. If you're having to actually fight an outsider, even in human form, you've already made one or more serious mistakes. Just because they aren't physically enhanced when they look like the people that they've overtaken doesn't mean that they aren't dangerous. Just like a normal human, they can hurt and kill you. And bear in mind that the mind powering that body isn't the same mind as the person that it inhabits. These beings aren't perfect. They can be tricked, they can make mistakes, and they can be outsmarted, but they are very intelligent and very ruthless. They do access and utilize the brain and the memories of the person that they inhabit, and it seems from my experience to have some impact on their behavior. How they talk, even when the mask of emotion is gone, for instance, or how they might go about accomplishing their individual goals. My point is that they are always a threat, regardless of their form. And even when things go well, which they don't always, there is always a physical component to this kind of work, being stealthy, carrying equipment and bodies, fighting or running when something goes wrong, it all takes a real toll. In the first five years of hunting these things, I lost 30 pounds of fat and gained 20 pounds of muscle. Some of that is I made a point of exercising, more to improve my odds against them, but most of it was just the work itself. In some ways, I was healthier in my late 40s and early 50s than I had ever been in my life. But by the time that I hit my early 60s, I could feel things starting to slide back the other way. I would get out of breath easier and I could feel myself getting a little weaker over time. If I got hurt, it took longer for me to come back from it. And my joints weren't as limber anymore either. Now, I'd estimate that I was still well above average for someone that age, but most people weren't doing the kinds of things that I was doing either. And while it concerned me some... It wasn't unexpected. 
All I could do was mitigate the effects of aging as best as I could and keep working on improving how I did my work. Then one day, I just got sick all of a sudden. I was in a grocery store and felt a wave of nausea and dizziness overcome me. I would have fallen if not for the shopping cart that I was pushing. I stood there gripping that cart for support for long enough. A couple of different people asked if I was okay. I was able to reassure them and eventually get moving again, but I still had to give up shopping and head to the car. By the time that I was cranking up, it had faded somewhat. I still felt bad, but I was okay to drive. So I drove home, drank some water, and I just went to bed. I woke up 12 hours later, and my first thought was to get a feel for how I was doing. Was there any sign of weakness or nausea, fever, but no. Not only did I not feel bad any longer, I felt great. I got out of bed easily, and as I cautiously tested myself... I could tell that I had none of the aches and pains that I would have normally expected after being in bed so long. Over the next few days, the feeling of wellness and strength only grew. My endurance was better than it had ever been and I could lift as much as when I was 25. I knew that this was all abnormal from the start and I considered that a seed could have implanted from an earlier stage, but you have to understand that I was trying to be cautious. I was monitoring myself very closely, and so far, I wasn't seeing any negative side effects or indications of anything usurping my control. Plus, seeds didn't seem to make outsiders physically stronger or better in their human form. When I began to worry more about the possibility, I had one implanted in me. That was the fact that I could always return to as a way of easing my fears, or rationalizing them away. Because... I admit I didn't want to be a seed, and I didn't want the way that I felt to go away. It was easier to just keep enjoying the benefits and keeping watch for any trouble rather than getting a definitive answer. I had already learned I could detect seeds with an MRI, but when the thought of testing myself would periodically arise, I would always have an excuse for delaying it, waiting until I had gathered more data. I was being foolish and selfish, I know, trying to lie to myself and doing a poor job of it too. But then, one day, I got shot in the chest. While I've had several encounters with the House of Leclaw over the years, today was only the fourth time that I actually had real combat with them. The first time was when I was in my 50s and the second time was a short time later with the remainder of the first group which taught me the importance of killing an entire cell when you can. The third time was about six months after I had gotten sick in the store and woke up the next day feeling so much stronger. I had hunted down two outsiders in that six-month period, but the second one had a group of the house that was serving it, which I learned a few days later when they ran me straight off the road. There were only four in that cell and the first two I actually managed to run over with my car by playing possum when they approached to see if I was dead. The third started to run and was actually shot and killed by the fourth as some kind of weird cold court marshal or something. Then he turned the gun on me. My gun had gotten dislodged from its normal place behind the passenger seat somewhere between me getting run off the road and turning the two house guys into a speed bump. The fourth member was too close for me to search for the gun, 
and at a bad angle to try and hit him with the car, so my thought was to just reach him with my baton before he turned his attention from the cohort that he was murdering back to me. I almost made it too. I was raising the baton to bring down on his arm when he turned and fired straight into my chest. His aim wasn't perfect, but it was definitely good enough. The bullet perforated my right lung and went out my back, chipping a rib along the way. I spun from the impact and had the presence of mind to keep turning, whipping the baton into his face as I drew even with him. It struck him with a wet and meaty crunch that dropped him immediately. And man, I fell the next moment. My chest was burning painfully with each breath. I knew I likely had only a short time before my lungs started collapsing, so after making sure number four was dead, I headed back to my car and started trying to find the duct tape. When you get shot in the chest, one of the biggest risks that you face is your lung collapsing. This can be caused by outside air coming through the hole which stops your lung from being able to expand. Another way is that if the area around the lung fills with blood, again, it can't expand. Either one can cause you to slip into unconsciousness and die pretty quickly. I needed to get to a hospital, but first I needed to do what I could to slow down any collapse. Taking off my shirt, I laid strips of duct tape to make a bandage for my back wound and then for my chest wound. After applying the back bandage with some difficulty, I took an empty ballpoint pen barrel and inserted it into the bullet hole in my chest before sealing and securing it with the remaining strips of tape. The idea is the same as a needle decompression. You're giving the air outside your lungs somewhere to go so that you can continue to breathe. The problem is that what I had done would only fix one of the issues, particularly when I still had to be upright and driving. My chest cavity and lung could still be filling with blood and kill me just as quickly. I started towards the nearest hospital, but I knew that it was over 20 minutes away, even if I drove fast, which I wasn't capable of doing. I could feel myself getting weaker and every breath was painful, to say nothing of the gunshot wound itself. I kept driving as I tried to think of better alternatives to my current plan, and as I went, I realized that all of a sudden I was feeling better. At first, I thought it was my imagination or the onset of physical shock, but as the minutes passed, I could see tangible improvements. The pain was fading, and I wasn't having problems with my breathing. Finally, I pulled over and carefully removed the pen barrel and tape from my chest. The hole actually looked smaller and wasn't bleeding anymore. I gingerly reached back to where the bullet had exited, and peeled away the tape. When I probed with my fingers a little, I found it was tender, but the flesh was untorn. I started driving again, still headed toward the hospital at that point. My mind was swimming, and I was already chastising myself for not having looked into what was happening to me more, for not finding out if I had been compromised by a seed or some other outside influence. I promised myself that if I survived this, I wouldn't turn a blind eye for convenience sake ever again. When I reached the hospital parking lot, I looked at my chest again. It was now completely healed. I had no pain or problems that I could tell at least. Instead of going in, I went to my own office and I ran some tests. I had just started leasing an MRI machine the year before, 
both for my medical work and my after-hours studies, and it didn't take long for me to find the dark speck lodged in the deep folds of my left temporal lobe. I could have done a lot of different things at this point, killed myself, or try to have it removed being two obvious choices. I struggled with the decision and what it meant if I stayed alive and left the seed where it was. My reasoning was ultimately based on a, a few assumptions. First, it seemed clear that I had been targeted for a seed, because as we discussed before, the odds are just far too great to make it likely that I got selected for one by chance. But that would mean that they know about me to some extent. Yet, I've never had someone assault me at work or home or track me down, other than in response to specific actions I took, such as killing an outsider associated with a house cell. Attacks against me seemed to always be about what I had done, not some greater knowledge of who I was or what I had done in the past. Now, I admit that that was still a guess. They could have reasons for not attacking me at times while knowing everything about me, but my suspicion was that they targeted people by some means independent of knowing a name or specific address. My experience since then has continued to bear this out as well. It's almost instinctual, I think, though that instinct is propelled by intellect and purpose. Secondly, I knew that my newfound strength and resilience wasn't normal for those that received a seed. Setting aside the possibility of getting a different kind of seed than most or having some unique property in and of itself that changed the seed's effects, both of which seemed unlikely, all things considered, I found the most likely answer was actually Salk's blood. Even if they had invaded thousands of people, the odds of any of those having ingested and having been altered by an outsider's blood prior to receiving the seed was very unlikely. I couldn't question that Salk's blood had irrevocably changed me. Even long after his blood should have faded from my system, I retained and even further developed my ability to sense outsiders. And so, it seemed likely that, however it permanently changed my body, also afforded me some level of protection from the seed and granted other benefits as well. Third, I assumed that the outsiders themselves or whoever they call master did not realize this would happen. I saw little benefit for them in making someone like myself stronger and harder to kill. If that was correct, it was a sign of their fallibility and it gave me hope that I could use their attempt to punish and subjugate me against them. And now, for years, that's exactly what I've done. All the time keeping a, a close check on myself for signs that I was changing or being taken over or something. For the longest time, I saw none. But about three months ago, I started having some strange dreams. It started sporadically, but then it became a nightly occurrence. Then a few days ago, I noticed myself having odd thoughts. You have to understand that whatever my mistakes in all of this are, I have truly tried to remain responsible and have trained myself to be hypervigilant to any signs of problems since getting the seed. Part of that has been examining my internal self, going into my inner dark and finding the person who lives there, coming to know them all. What I'm getting at is that I know my thoughts and some things lately, well, it's just not me. 
I haven't lost control. Not that I can tell, but I can't continue on like this any longer. It's too great a risk to everything that I care about, including you. I've made friends over the years. Some are people that have helped. Others are on the inside of this thing like I am and, well, like you are now, at least to some extent. One of those friends is a doctor. Not a surgeon, really, but I helped save his daughter a few years back and he owes me. He knows enough and I've told him enough that he can do the procedure that I've taught him to remove the seed from me. I've never done this procedure on someone before and I have no way of knowing if it'll work. And one of several things is likely to happen. One, he'll be able to extract the seed with minimal brain damage and no fracture of the seed. If that happens, I will likely live and be okay. Two, he will extract the seed intact, but it will cause significant brain damage, either killing or severely impairing me. That is not my favorite outcome. Three, he will fracture the seed during extraction and I will get transported, either alive or dead, to, well, wherever these things come from. Hopefully dead, because I don't think that they will greet me warmly, that's for sure. And fourth, the seed will react to being extracted and either take me over or kill me. Now, there is another possibility in all of this. Given our history, I, I think it's unlikely, but I cannot fully rule it out either. If my doctor friend, Prakash, has been gotten to, he may try to kill me while I'm under. In that event, or if the seed doesn't start taking me over, it would be useful to have an insurance policy. And as I can tell, you've already guessed that I'm talking about you. This is nothing that you have to say yes to, and I even hate the idea of putting you at more risk than I already have. The procedure isn't going to be for four more days, so you have time to decide in any case. My original plan was to help you finish sorting out your folk stuff and then come and have the procedure on my own. If I didn't make it, well, I got to spend some time with you and you would hopefully have some good final memories of your grandpa. But things, things never work out quite like you plan. Your knowledge and involvement today opens up a new possibility, one that you need to seriously consider before you decide what you want to do. If you say no, then I'll spend the time that I have with you now if you're willing and I can always look you up later if things go well. If things don't, well, we'll discuss contingencies before you leave if you decide that you want out. If you say yes, then you have to commit to it for not only my sake, but your own. I can't have you in a dangerous situation that you aren't prepared for. What I'm saying is that if you decide to stay and help, you have to be ready to kill my friend. You have to be ready to kill even me. You need to think about it for a while before you answer, before this hole only goes deeper and darker the further you go. I, I think that I've done some good in my life, but I have no illusions about who it's made me or, more accurately, what it's brought out in me. I'm a killer, and that's not an easy thing to face and live with for 
a lot of people. It's up to you to go into your inner dark like I did and find the person that's waiting there. See what they are and aren't capable of living with. And if you can embrace that. Just remember that when you really find them, past all of the, the self-deception and lies, you will have found something valuable and true. Whether they want to stay or go, kill or run, whether you love them or hate them, that inner self, it won't lie to you. <laughs> Sometimes I, I think that that's the worst part. They're so, they're so damned honest. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Be Scared Podcast. And please, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode too. Also, it would be much appreciated if you could share this new podcast with your friends and family and on social media too. Thanks again for listening, guys, and I'll see you mates in the next one. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.